This is week three of our four-week series of walking through the heart of our worship and talking about the prayer book. The first week, we discussed some general things about the prayer book. The second week, we discussed morning prayer. Last week, that was what last week. These next two weeks are dedicated to the Holy Communion liturgy in particular. Um, And especially next week, the final week is the one where we'll get into a lot of the questions that people have had that we've answered before but happy to answer again about our communion liturgy and particularly sort of the back half of it when we're in the communion liturgy proper and why we've made some of the decisions we've made about the prayers and the ordering of those prayers in there. So that'll come next week, but we're setting it up this week and talking about the first half of the liturgy. Nevertheless, um, before we do that, I wanted to review our two goals for this class. Number one was to help us better connect head and heart because the ultimate goal here is not that we think all these wonderful thoughts about God and walk away with worship saying intellectual things like, wasn't that such a a beautiful choral anthem? Or uh, aren't the prayers of the liturgy lovely? I mean, those are wonderful things, but those are things that heads say. Hearts say, isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't His grace astounding? I was bowled over afresh by just how much God loves me in Christ. Those are the statements of one walking out of worship who has truly seized the whole goal of what prayer book worship is about. So the goal for this class is to help us better connect head and heart and also, therefore, to tune our ears to hear that gospel in worship because it's coming at us a bunch of ways. And today, I'm going to show us sort of how the Holy Communion Liturgy preaches that word in four cycles to us to sort of break down all the elements so that our ears might be tuned to hear the word, the only word that is the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1. The only word that actually has the power to do things to your heart that would make you love God more and love your neighbor more. All right? We could guilt you into it. We could browbeat you into it. And that's a wonderful thing that churches do that yields, yields uh, short-term results. All right? But the Bible says the only way that actually uh, will make you the type of person that loves God and loves one another, that's the great commandment, right? The only way that that'll happen is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're fixated upon declaring and demonstrating that gospel here. That's why I'm fixated upon pointing it out to you in our liturgy. Because as we hear that, we're able to receive the power of God unto salvation. The theology of the prayer book, again, the central question being asked in the Reformation, is how people are changed. And the Reformation recovered upon looking at the Scriptures. People are changed by a work of God in the heart, not by conformity to externals, all right? And it's not that the conformity to externals are unimportant, but they are relativized and find their place in and only in as people are actually changed by a work of God, not your own work, in the heart. And so how does God do this work? They read again the scriptures and came to the conclusion that it is through His Word, particularly in the Gospel, as I just said, that this work happens. All right, And the prayer book itself is founded upon this vision of the way people are changed. It's founded upon this vision, which is why 
the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized in this statement that we've said time and again. Everybody say it with me. The Word of God births faith. Alright? If I am to have faith in God, it is not something I can muster up on my own. It is something that God produces in me, particularly through His Word, particularly through the Gospel in His Word. Okay? It is as I hear that Word about Jesus that faith is burst and fueled in me. And it is that faith that propels me to be able to love God and serve and love my neighbor. Okay? So if this rule, this understanding, the Word of God births faith is at play, we have this kind of sort of a keep calm and carry on looking diagram. Um, just to give us a visual of the way this works, as the Word of God comes from God to us, it births faith in us back to God. And maybe we could say there should be a horizontal arrow as well because it, it births faith that expresses itself in horizontal love. We could say with Luther that God doesn't need one ounce of our works, but our neighbor does. So when the Word of God births faith in us, the result is a kind of conveyor belt of good works that come forth from us so that our neighbor is loved and served. That's the way justice works in this scheme. That's the way all our righteousness works. It's not for God. It's not transactional between us and God because righteousness is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. But once implanted in our hearts and reminded and preached to the unbelief of our hearts, it issues forth good works for the sake of our neighbor. All right? So this keep calm and carry on looking idea, we're going to use it. But what I want to say for today as we go through the Holy Communion Liturgy is I want to actually expand on what we mean by the Word of God as the Reformation understood it. And again, I always talk about the Reformation. What I mean is when the Reformation uh, writers and thinkers read the Scriptures, they rediscovered some things that have been lost for a long time or at least made opaque for a long time. But before we get there, once again... Uh, the heart of the prayer book is unleashing the Word of God to convert your heart. Yes, you Christian, to convert your heart. Because just like the unreached people groups of, say, Africa, there are regions and continents of your heart that are yet unreached by the Gospel. Why? What's the evidence of that? You sin. Okay? Christians still sin. And sin is an expression of unbelief. Okay? That's the way that we understand how this works. So it's unleashing the Word of God to convert your heart in addition to the heart of the person who doesn't claim to know Jesus. All right? Last week we talked about how morning prayer is a journey from earth to the heart of the Father and sent out back on mission. And I encourage you to read that, but I wanted to remind you of that. I hope that this arc, this narrative, this look uh, sticks in your Heads, and I realize that this might help a little. Oh, it's already on there. Okay, the lighting of it. All right. These are all the elements of the Holy Communion liturgy. And just like when you giggled last week when I showed you all the elements of the morning prayer liturgy, it's a little overwhelming, right? Just to look at this list without even seeing what's on it. How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of the ordering of it? And what the significance and why all the ups and downs and movements and actions of, you know, sometimes... Because our worship is so dense, that's part of, the, um, that's part of the, the liability of liturgical traditions, is that worship is really dense. 
and you lose the force of experiencing the presence of God for the trees of all the elements of the liturgy. Okay? That's going to always be our liability, which is probably why I'll be needing to teach this class until I die. Because you and I are always going to be prone towards being in the weeds of it and forgetting what it is God's trying to say and what it is He's trying to do. But when we look at all these elements, it's a little overwhelming. But as I told you last week, both our morning prayer liturgy and our Holy Communion liturgy operate on a hinge. Okay? Two parts. And the morning prayer liturgy, uh, we talked about what that hinge was. And you can observe where the hinge in worship is based on where we've placed the welcome. Whenever Andrew's standing up there and saying, Hi, everybody, and here's a bunch of announcements, that's that hinge between the first part and the second part of the morning prayer liturgy and the Holy Communion liturgy. Now, the Holy Communion liturgy that we have is based on probably one of the most ancient structures of two-part structures of worship. The first part has been historically called the liturgy of the word. And what's meant by that is the liturgy of the scriptures. It's that first half before we get to the communion proper. It's everything from the opening voluntary and prelude all the way through the sermon and the offertory. It's important that we view the offertory as the end of the liturgy of the word, not the beginning of communion. I'll explain that next week. It's a very important theological ramification to that, that maybe some of you will start to get in your heads as we go through it. But the first part's called the liturgy of the word, and the second part has been called historically the liturgy of the upper room. Now, why this division? The upper room being that place where Jesus gave the Last Supper, so it's the, it's the communion liturgy proper. Why would Christians have had this two-part liturgy? There's actually a really practical reason. It's because in the early church, when they worshipped, only those uh, who, who were called the, the people that were past being catechumens, the people that were actually had confessed and professed their faith in Christ, were allowed to be in the room during the second part of the liturgy. During the first part, everyone could be there. Inquirers, people that were kind of asking questions about Christianity, they could all be there for the liturgy of the Word. But then there came a dismissal, because the table is reserved for people who profess faith in Jesus, for people who are Christians who have been seized by the Word of God on their lives. And so there was this moment of dismissal, you know, uh, which is why even today we have these, these kind of, this two-part structure to our liturgy, the liturgy of, of the Word and the liturgy of the upper room. Now, the Reformation understanding of this would have a bit of problem with this nomenclature, okay? Calling one the liturgy of the upper word, or, or sorry, the liturgy of the Word, and calling the other the liturgy of the upper room, kind of places a false dichotomy, as though this part over here is where the Word ministers and then the Word ceases to minister here. The Reformation understanding would be that because the Word of God is living and active and always speaking into us, we might, it might be better to say that both of these are liturgies of the Word. The first one might be better described as a liturgy of the Word in Scripture reading and preaching. And the second we might call a liturgy of the Word in communion. Okay, Because the Word of God in communion is addressing us. And I am speaking about the Scriptures, but I'm also speaking about the way that John, in John 1, describes Jesus as the Word of God. Jesus is executing a ministry to us actively in the present at communion. So both of them are ministries of the Word. We go back to this idea of God... uh, delivering his word to us and birthing faith. And what I want to say is 
As we look at Paul, particularly in Romans 3 and 2 Corinthians 3, a proper understanding of of, uh, the way the Word of God comes at us, we we might understand it as a twofold way that the one Word of God speaks to us. Speaks to us in law and speaks to us in gospel. Law and gospel. You read Romans 3 and 2 Corinthians 3 and you get a strong sense of the way that these work. They were Paul's interpretation grid of how he read the Old Testament. And you see it in the way in his epistles. He outlines Old Testament theology. He says God is working law and working gospel into them. And I know that it's talked about a lot at this church, so I won't go into it too much because there are other places you can go to to really hear this. But I want to say this scheme of the Word of God being understood as first law, then gospel, both in its order and its declaration, is a scheme that is that fills our liturgy, okay? Law is that word of God that puts to death your self-righteousness, that exposes your sin and says, hey sinner, you need Jesus because all of us are prone. I think she just heard, hey Siri. Hey Siri just heard, that's so funny. (laughs) Siri knows she's a sinner. Siri has heard the law, all right? That's really funny. No, be quiet, be quiet. All right, no, you don't need to, no. That's really funny. That's going to come up in some sermon. That's going to be an illustration somewhere, okay? The law of God is the word that puts to death, that exposes our sin, okay? It calls you out. And the gospel is the word that comes in only after that word has put you flat on your back and said, I need a savior. I can't save myself. The hound of heaven has cornered you. The gospel swoops in and says, Here is your Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for the ungodly while they were ungodly, who rose for your justification. This this ordering of the word is something really important. So what I want to say is in our liturgy, listen for this constant ordering, law, gospel, and then faith. Law, gospel, and then faith. And let me prove it to you. If we look at one side, law and gospel, and the other side, faith being birthed up, this happens in about four cycles in our communion liturgy, in four parts. So I'm going to put up the elements so that you can see how this works. Part one. At the very beginning, we have this collect for purity. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open. Right? This prayer that is saying, my heart is exposed before you. But it's also declaring the law to you. Interestingly, Cranmer, he was he uniquely added this to the liturgy. Um, And we either speak the Ten Commandments or the summary of the law. But in this first part of the service, that's the first thing that hits us. It's the law of God, right? And then after that, we have the collect of the day, which if you listen to it closely, often has a lot of comforting and comfortable words in them. And then we read this cycle of the scriptures, the epistle, hymn, and the gospel. And if you're listening to what's in there, Many times, maybe not all the times in this section because the lectionary readings change, but many times you will hear the word that responds and comes after the law, which is the gospel, that word that births faith, with the result that you and I respond in faith by saying, I believe with the Nicene Creed and praying to God. The faithful actions of people in response to God's grace are to say, God, have mercy on us. We need you for a bunch of things. That's what faith looks like. That's how, how we begin to love our neighbor, is first by praying for them, okay? So that's part one. The next part, again, these are cycles. Why? Because 
it's trying to come at you again and again and open up that heart of yours that is so callous and is hiding in unbelief. And so it's kind of burrowing into your soul, trying to find those little caverns and those places where you still have posted a guard and say, God, don't come into this one. This is my domain. You know, so another cycle comes through. We confess our sin. That's the law coming at us because it's telling us that I need to say some things to God that expose that I'm a sinner. And then after that, we have this awesome moment of the declaration of forgiveness and comfortable words, the gospel. And then the peace and the blessing. May the peace of the Lord be all of a sudden we're flooded with peace and we're able to enact that horizontally through the simple greeting of one another as a way of sort of embodying what loving our neighbor as a result of this work of law and gospel is on us and a welcome and a blessing. Now, these are the kinds of things that come out of the faith-filled life. Part three, law then gospel. If you hear a sermon at Advent, you should hear these words, not the words law and the words gospel, but you should feel the word of God doing that dipartite work, that two-part work of exposing your sin and giving you Jesus of showing your need for him and then handing him to you through the power of the Spirit. That's what a sermon does is law and gospel, right? And then after the sermon, we have an offertory. Why? Because any offering that we give to God is always in response to God's work to us. Remember, the word births faith. Always that order. And so this part, part three, is another cycle where God's coming at us trying to find those recesses of your heart that you still haven't given over, right? And if that weren't enough, the whole communion liturgy, properly understood, is this same work from beginning to end. The great thanksgiving, the sanctus, the Lord's prayer, and the prayer of humble access. All those things in our liturgy, and maybe you don't know what they are, we'll go over them in more detail next week with the prayers affixed so you can know why they're named these things. But that's the work of law because it's trying to expose the sin that's in our lives. When we receive communion, that's gospel. What words do you hear from the person administering communion? The body of Christ which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Be comforted, sinner. You have felt like you couldn't approach this table. But God says, come. I welcome you with open arms. In and through Jesus Christ. Come experience my presence. All right? And then faith erupts out of the prayer that we pray after communion. Four parts. All right. Good. I want to highlight a few aspects that are kind of really cool and powerful moments of the first part of the communion liturgy before I open it up to questions. So, one highlight is what we call the Collect for Purity. Let's read it all together. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. I want to point out several things about this prayer. The first thing I want to point out is that it's Trinitarian. Notice you have all three persons of the Trinity spoken of and to. Why? It's important for us to realize that in worship, as we begin, the members of the Trinity are one God, eternally existing in three persons, are actively involved in working on you 
and doing that work of death and resurrection in you. The Father sends the Spirit to you to showcase and spotlight the glories of the Son. I want to point out these words. These words are very important in our liturgies across the board. Hearts. You hear it time and again when you hear things like uh, God uh, or us, who with hearty repentance. Hearty isn't like Campbell's soup with lots of chunks in it. Okay? That's not what we mean. It's, it's old English language for heartfelt or from the heart. I don't want God, no fake repentance that's of outward actions. I want to be marked by a hearty repentance, a repentance from my heart. Okay? The liturgy is always after your heart. And that's one of the funny things about ritualistic worship is that we often get accused in our liturgy and in our practices of just focusing on all the outward stuff. Right? The liturgy is zero good. Zero good. If that's all it is. If that's all it is, we should go home. Because we have nothing powerful to believe or say. This liturgy needs to be something that pierces all the way through to the heart. And if it does, I guarantee, if you've got people who are skeptical, who come in our midst, and see people whose hearts are being addressed, identified, and changed, they cannot help but saying what those non-believers said that Paul referred to in Corinthians, when he said, surely God was in their midst. I saw God at work in people. I saw weeping eyes. I saw changed hearts. And there's something there that I can't deny. I've been fighting God my whole life. But I see people who are enacting these rituals, who are, are letting these rituals be beyond skin deep. And it's going straight to their heart. Okay? So we've got to be people that are listening from the heart. It's important, too, that this, this prayer isn't supposed to necessarily be a warm and fuzzy prayer. The idea of open heart, think of it more like the metaphor, less of like, oh God, my, my fuzzy warm heart is open to you. And more like open heart surgery. Oh God, you've, you've sliced my sternum up. My rib cage is open and you've exposed the, the core and center of my need. We come clean before God. Again, God is interested in worship and nothing short of death and resurrection God's not interested in, in just putting a thin veneer of cute, nicely well-dressed Christianity on you. That's not Christianity anyway, okay? God is interested in cutting you open and dealing with the core of who you are. And so when this prayer is prayed, pray it in your hearts and say, God, my heart today is open to you. These words are really important words. All hearts are open. No secrets are hid. If you thought you could come to worship and pretend, Cranmer is here to remind you, right at the front end of worship, you can't hide. I've got your number. All right? And why? Uh, you know, what's the purpose of worship? It's, it's once this open heart surgery has happened, it's with the result that we perfectly love thee. This is setting us up, all right, for what happens next in worship. Because, it, you know, God, I want you to do such a work in me that I perfectly love you. And that's in a wonderful, earnest prayer. But just in case we thought that right after this prayer, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be able to perfectly love God. God gives us the law and says, hey, Christian, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, with some of your soul, and with some of your strength. And Christian's like, yeah, I can do that. No, it says, love the Lord your God with all. 
And with each all of this, you should feel the old Adam and the old Eve, this sinful heart of yours, beat down into submission. Okay? Because if you thought you could come in and perfectly love and worthily magnify the Lord, the law is here to tell you, you want to hear that bar? The bar is exceedingly high. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There's an implicit question when that law is declared. What's that question? How well are you doing at that? Right? Sinner, you can't run and can't hide. That's kind of the idea of the start of worship. So the prayer book allows for us two expressions of the law of God. We most often use that summary of the law that I just described to you. But during Lent and Advent, we exchange it for what has actually more been the historic uh, expression of the law of God at the beginning of the liturgy, which is the recitation of the Ten Commandments. So every, every week during Lent for our Holy Communion liturgy, you will hear. And what do, we, you know, what do we respond after every commandment is read? Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts, our hearts, to keep thy law, to keep this law. Why? Because it's exposing. Lord, have mercy on us is exposing. You shall love the Lord your God with, with all your heart. You know, it's exposing that I can't do it. Don't make for yourself any idols. Ugh, I kind of made a few this week. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our heart. It's, it's just a, it's a ten-fisted punch at the old Adam, at your heart, to expose and tell you, you need Jesus, all right? So when we've been successfully beaten down, some things start happening. Okay, another element of our worship that I want to highlight, the gospel procession, or what's all that fuss with the candles and organ and walking and special Bible and whatnot, all right? <laughs> what is that all about? Um, in the Holy Communion Liturgy, we don't, the lector doesn't read the gospel from uh, the eagle lectern, right? There's a procession, and oftentimes it's our deacon, Catherine Jacob, that'll stand before you. Two dudes or dudettes are holding candles, and someone's holding the, the Bible, uh, and, and Catherine's reading it, right? Why, what's the value of the, that picture and that symbol? They wanted to get across that when the gospels are being read, these stories about Jesus, when the gospels are being read, they're a picture of what the gospel is. The gospel is God drawing near. And so, that's why they often encourage the gospel to be read in the midst of the people, as they'd say. Right? There's a difference between it being read on high, where the eagle flies up here, and close to us. And it's meant to say, as these gospels are read, remember these things. Jesus is the light of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation of God who has drawn near. So when you see these candles, when you see this, this Bible here, recognize that it's meant to sort of tell you, Jesus is here for you. He is one of you. He is close and near. You know? So it's a moment to receive with your eyes and it many times hear with your ears the good news about Jesus. Sometimes though, what's interesting about our readings is that the epistle reading, if we're just talking about what's being spoken based on the lectionary, the epistle reading or even the Old Testament reading is actually the word that's declaring the gospel to you. And the gospel reading is actually maybe declaring a word of law to you. And so you need to sort of, even though your, your eyes see this reality of Jesus drawing near, sometimes you're hearing the law and the gospel at different moments. And that's just a little kind of pastoral uh, reminder to let you know that sometimes electionary readings won't, won't mean that every time this gospel reading happens, it's a word of comfort. Because sometimes it's that word that Jesus said like in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he's saying, 
You know, don't lust. And I tell you, any of you have evil thoughts in your hearts toward another, uh, toward another man or woman, you know, that's lust. That's adultery, all right? It's the same thing. So sometimes, depending on the way the reading works, even though the visual is the gospel shows that Jesus has come near. It may be in the epistle or in the Old Testament where you're hearing the good news about Jesus. Another highlight is the confession of sin. It's just a, an amazing prayer. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. Again, you thought you could run and hide? He's the Father of all of us. He's the judge of everybody, all right? And here come the words that start to make the heart stir. We acknowledge, I, I acknowledge with my head, and I bewail with my heart. Our manifold sins, okay, not just one kind of sin, but they express themselves in a thousand ways, all right? Manifold sins and wickedness, just in case sin sounds a little bit too theological for you. Kramer's giving you yet another word to sort of poke at what this is. And you see this time and again, this du- these doublets and triplets of language in our liturgy that are meant to sort of drive these points home. If you thought that one word wasn't good enough for you, you've got two. We acknowledge our manifold sins and wickedness. All right? And then this is a funny line to our modern ears, which we from time to time have committed. You and I are tempted to think that this means, which I, you know, I've committed some sins from, from time to time, you know, every once in a while, right? That's not what the original language meant. It meant time and again, over and over, incessantly, all right? So that's a little bit of a difference of the way the evolution of language works, which means that if you thought that this was a moment of little respite for your sinful heart to go, ah, it's it's not as bad as as we can expect, uh, you need to know this doesn't mean that. (laughs) It means I sin all the time. This time, that time, that time, that time, all right? Which we, from time to time, have not just committed, but most grievously. And this is the part where we're doing dialogue with a loving father. His heart's grieved. His heart's grieved. And we're coming clean that these things that that we do are, are grievous. And we recognize not only does this sort of offend you as judge, it breaks your heart. Okay? This is the loving God that we serve. And just in case you thought sin could be sort of cordoned to a few different types. Thought. Word. Deed. Is any stone left unturned here? Is any stone left unturned against that? And it's ultimately not against other people, although it is. We've sinned against others. It's always going back to the fact that we have offended and sinned against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly. You have every right, God, to be upset, to be angry, because we have violated your holiness, right? We do earnestly repent and are what kind of sorry? Heartily sorry. For these are misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them. You know, sin isn't just something that we sort of slough off. It's been a heavy weight that you've brought into worship. That you are asking for something to be... It's heavy. It's burdensome. It's intolerable. I can't hold it anymore. The guilt inside is too much. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Twice. Most merciful Father, for thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may... There's always a trajectory to this. It's like, God, when you forgive me, help me that I might be able to love you and serve others rightly to, so that I can honor and glorify your name, right? The comfortable words are these words 
that are meant to be an extension in case the forgiveness didn't get to your heart enough. It's these four verses from Scripture, from, from Matthew and from John and from the epistles of John, from the epistle to Timothy, where we hear, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world. It's like a, it's a instead of a ten-fist punch, it's a four-armed welcome and hug, saying, Sinner, hear this good news again in a different way. I've declared to you the absolution and remission of your sins. But hear it in a very personal way. Hear these words as for you, right? That's actually all I want to do today. And I want to open it up to some questions and then we'll get into the meat and craziness of it next week. Victor. You know, great teaching. Um, just amazing. Um, I was not here last week. I was out of town. Um, I'm curious, Zach, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the dean said we are clearly a morning prayer <coughs> I know Martin Luther was a big fan of communion every Sunday. I'm just curious what that actually meant. Interestingly, we have our dean here today. (laughs) (laughs) Dean Pearson. This is where I fake a stroke. Um, (laughs) It's it's an observation. So right now in the Episcopal Church, it's almost across the board. Every time Episcopalians get together, they feel the need to have communion. And the Advent... um, since its inception, has felt that, um, that, but be careful how I say this, but because that one, well, let me just say this up front. Just because we don't have communion every service, it doesn't mean that that service is denigrated. It doesn't mean that we think less of that service. If anything, we elevate it. Uh, but you actually receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ anytime the word is administered whether that's through the reading of the word, through the preaching of the word, or through the visible word of the bread and wine and holy communion. I'll give you an example of how this works. I had a friend in Beaufort who was uh, dying of uh, cancer of the bone, and it was in his jaw. And so they had to wire his jaw shut. He couldn't uh, eat or drink anything without the aid of uh, a straw or a tube. And uh, Hal would come every single week to our healing service. And in that healing service, we would always have Holy Communion. Uh, and when Hal came forward uh, at the time for communion, uh, and I said, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed upon him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee, and be thankful. Uh, Hal couldn't eat the bread, he couldn't drink the wine, and yet he received Jesus Christ in the same way that we who do break the bread with our teeth and taste the wine in our mouths do. And so it's the communication of the word. And I think that if anything in the Episcopal Church what has happened is that there's an elevation of the Holy Communion uh, above even the word. Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, the Advent has been wise uh, to remain a, a morning prayer parish to keep that in perspective. And if anything, quite frankly, if you all grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I feel this way, uh, Holy Communion kind of became rote for me. You know, just week after week, you're, you're going through it. And, and I was in Buford. We had Holy Communion all the time. And I'll admit, I was up there doing the communion prayer. And I was thinking of my shopping list uh, because I just had it down. I could actually think about other things while I was going through the communion prayer. And I was convicted that um, 
And I, you can't blame the frequency per se, that's a heart issue, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think that having it less frequently gives us uh, more appreciation for it and allows us to prepare ourselves for it in a way that, that others don't have. Great question. Great answer. Ah. I was just struck uh, in the Gospel of John, the one at the well, where they talk about God, talk about the Holy Spirit. He opens her up. She proclaims him the Messiah. Totally. She's not crushed. She's made alive and wants to tell everybody. That's right. It's a moment where we're watching the Word of God work on someone and do that work of killing and making alive. All in Jesus' words to her. Yeah. Zach. Yeah. Um, before the comfortable words, and I don't have it memorized, but there's something that the priest says, and it's basically something like, you know, Holy God, pardon and deliver you. And I think there's even a note in the prayer book that it's for a priest to say. Yep. Why not pardon and deliver us? Because it feels a little pre-Reformation, this idea it does. that we need you in between us to do that. Us and God to do that. For That's us. good. It I might... It's, um, I think that's a great observation because we don't want our priestly ministry to ever cause uh, an understanding of us as some sort of holy, specialized person who has kind of these, this magic ability to absolve you. I think part of the reason that the you language is still important is that, as I said in my adventurer word, I think this, this most recent one, it's one thing to hear that the God, Jesus forgives sinners, or even Jesus forgives us. It's another thing for you to hear, Jesus forgives you. And it's less about the declarer, and more about the word coming to a declaree. The declaree, you and me too, need to hear the word that, it's not just that Jesus died for the ungodly, but it's that Jesus died for you, ungodly one. You know, we need to hear with that directness and that specificity, which is why. You know, it's interesting practice. I, uh, because Matt Schneider's hands are free at the 5 o'clock, I often observe him doing this. When he's doing this, he often has his hand here. I think that's a really interesting picture of the way it works. He's often saying it to you, Matt Schneider. I often see him doing that kind of like it goes both ways. Um, and that's certainly how I receive it as well. I sort of have an out-of-body experience and hear myself saying the gospel to myself, which is a little dangerous. I need other people to do it. <laughs> um, God chooses other human beings, brothers and sisters across from coffee, when you're struggling with your sin, to be able to just say to you, don't forget, Jesus died for you, and he died for that sin that you can't get at. You know, the sin that you can't forget, God can't remember. Don't forget that. One more question. We have solved all the riddles of the Holy Communion Liturgy. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Grace and peace. Hey, Zach. I have oh, one more question. One more question. All right. We talk a lot about the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, Annoying, isn't it? Helpful. No, 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 no. But it would be helpful to hear you articulate for us what would you, how would you answer the question. Tell me that, uh, Zach. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus lives for you. That's how I describe it. What yeah. kind of response? What kind of response would you invite? 
believe upon Jesus, repent and believe the gospel, which is not the gospel. It is a call to believe in it. Yep. But the gospel is simply a word from one person to another that's ultimately from the Holy Spirit that says, Jesus died for the ungodly and you are that ungodly person and you come, hear the good news. Jesus died for you. Jesus lives for you. Great question. Great way to end. Great word to hear as you go out. Blessings.